Hi, Pastor Anthony here. At Vintage Faith Church, we stand behind the Bible's claim to be the Word of God, and we believe that the Scriptures contain everything needed for life and godliness. The Scriptures testify to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We pray that this recording stirs your faith towards that end. This is in no way meant to be a substitute for the local church gathering, which we believe is critical to your growth as a Christian and your walk with Christ. We pray that you will find the sermon edifying and challenging. Thank you for listening. So what is the hope of the Christian faith? You don't have to answer me, but, but think um, in your head right now. And I, and, and I know I asked this question, and I, I'm sure there's multiple different answers that, that are going through people's minds in the room. But what, what is the, you know, another way I would ask it is, what is the Christian faith all about? Is it about doing good and, and morality? Is it about creating a better society? Is it about prosperity and health and wealth? Is it all about heaven? What is the Christian faith about? We're going to, I think, uh, get a pretty strong answer today from, from the text. Ever since the beginning, and when I say beginning, ever since the book of Genesis, Genesis in particular, chapter 3, where Adam and Eve rebelled against God, took the fruit, and all of creation experienced a fall. Ever since that point, God's people have always held out for a certain hope. Ever since that point, the world has been under what the Bible calls a curse. And I know that to some of you might sound a little strange and maybe even far-fetched to your modern mind, but that is what the Bible says what is wrong with the world, that, that the world, creation, even though creation is good and it's beautiful and, and people are made in the image of God and God has made some gloriously beautiful things, it's all under a, a curse, the ground is going to war against your work, men and women who, who hold jobs or even don't hold jobs if you're working in the home. You know this is true. The Bible calls it thorns and thistles. But the, the ground wars against your work, whether you work in an office or you work actually physically um, in the ground or you work outside uh, of your home or you work in the home, there is thorns and thistles in your work. Women, you know that childbearing is painful. Not only childbearing, but raising children uh, comes with a whole host of pain, right? It's beautiful, but there's pain involved. We're going to eat by the sweat of our brow, Genesis 3. Relationships are going to be difficult, fraught with conflict, James 4.1. All human beings will eventually get sick and eventually death comes for us all, Genesis 3. And Hebrews 2.15 says all humanity lives with this impending fear of death, which if you know Christ, you no longer live with that fear. The fall has affected every aspect of the human condition, from your minds to your will 
to your emotions, to your bodies, all of it. I'm 48 years old, and um, I, I'm going to be going to the dentist here soon in, in a few weeks and got another tooth acting up, and, and we're, we're decaying, right? Our bodies are decaying. Now, if you're under 30, you don't really quite maybe get that yet, but maybe mid-30s, who knows when that happens for you. For me, it was mid-30s. It was just right? And, and the older I get, the more I, I feel it. The fall has affected every aspect of the human condition. Romans 5.12 says this, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, who he's talking about, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. What is wrong with the world? Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, why, why are things the way they are? Why does any one of us ever desire that which is harmful for us? And if you're honest with yourself, you know that's true. You know that's true. Why would we ever want to do things that we know to be absolutely wrong? Why war and all this unhappiness and turmoil and discord amongst men? There's only one answer to these questions. Sin. Nothing else. It is just sin. So I know many of you would agree with that statement, but I also know that there's most likely people in here that that, that, that isn't included in your worldview. You may think, hey, the, what, what's going to eventually make the world a better place is better medicine or better education or technology is going to lead us into the promised land and none of that. Those things may make life a little better, but sin is the problem with humanity. And as we read in Romans 5.12, sin brings death, sickness, death. Have you ever considered this in your life? The strife, the conflict, the fights with the people closest to you, the desires that you have that lead you in, in wrong places, your lusts, your appetites. Maybe you act on every whim of emotion that you have. Have you ever considered that sin is your great enemy? Or maybe you've been abused. Maybe somebody took advantage of you. Maybe you were sinned against in such a grievous way that it's affected your entire life. Humanity's deepest problem is a problem that no doctor can fix, no teacher can fix, no politician can fix, because humanity's deepest problem is sin. Sin has affected everything. All of creation groans to be free from this bondage, Romans, Paul says in Romans. And brothers and sisters in Christ, 
My intent is not to bring you low and to just sit here this morning and stare at the the curse of sin. It's to, to look at it and look it straight in the face and then look to the hope that we have in Christ. So God has promised a Savior from Genesis 3. This is the entire story of the Bible. I don't know how familiar you all are with the story of the Bible, but it is one story from beginning to end. Humanity falls, and right away in Genesis 3, God promises there's coming one, the seed of of the woman, the seed of Eve, who's going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And if we were to go back a few weeks ago, we looked at the miracle uh, of Christ where he came to the demoniac and he cast out the demons. And that's just looking forward to it, showing that Christ is the seed of the woman who has come to crush the head of Satan. And as Steve so wonderfully did last week in his, his sermon, he, he talked um, and I don't want to misquote you, Steve, but you were saying the, the miracles of, of, of Jesus, they're not random. They're, they, they're just packed with, with meaning. So when Jesus comes out and casts demons, we go back to Genesis 3 and say, he's stomping on the head of Satan. And when Jesus walks on water, It's showing that he has power over creation and the chaos of the ocean. And today we're going to look at Jesus here healing a paralytic and pronouncing that the paralytic's sins are forgiven. So this sermon series we're we're in, it's called Signs of Redemption. And and again, Steve and I started working through this maybe in in November, December, thinking it through. And and the idea is, again, that that these miracles aren't happenstance. They're not random. They're actually all pointing to the whole purpose and thrust of the Bible, of the biblical storyline. We we know that Isaiah, um, in Isaiah 35, he, he prophesied about the new heavens and the new earth. And when John the Baptist ends up in prison, he, he's, he's scratching his head. We have here in Matthew 11, 2 to 6. This is John the Baptist, okay? We, if you don't know who John the Baptist is, he baptized Jesus. He was the one ushering in Christ. And John ends up in prison. And he says, the, the scripture says, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ... He sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. And he's quoting Isaiah here. He's quoting the new heavens and the new earth um, scripture by Isaiah. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So John's sitting in prison, and he's wondering, this isn't really happening like I thought it would happen. I'm suffering. I'm in prison. I'm I'm about to die. Is he he the one? I thought when Jesus came that that all all of death would be swallowed up. It would all be made new. 
there was some confusion. There was confusion amongst the disciples. And Jesus quotes Isaiah and says, tell him this is what's happening. So at this point in, in Jesus's ministry, we're going to get to our miracle. Um, there's a lot of crowds following him. E- everywhere he went, he, he has a, a crowd around him. And if you remember from uh, two weeks ago, it, it, John 6, the crowds aren't necessarily good when you read about the crowds in the Gospels. They're, they're not, it's not like, oh, look at all these people that Jesus has listening to his teaching. It's more these crowds want him for something that he's not, or these crowds are getting in the way of other people truly getting to him that, that believe in him. The crowds are usually mentioned in a negative light, and it's no different in, in the Gospel of Mark. Mark 1, 32 to 34, again, just setting up our text today. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So verse 33 says, the whole city was gathered together at the door. That's probably uh, hyperbolic. It's, it's a lot of people are gathered around what Jesus was doing in this home. Most um, people think that the home that he's doing this at is Peter's home, that he's, it's kind of his home base. But you've got this crowd gathering around Jesus. James Edwards says this, Of the crowds. The single most common attribute of crowds in Mark is that they obstruct access to Jesus. Thus, despite Jesus' popularity, crowds are not a measure of success in Mark. They constitute outsiders who stand either in ambivalence or opposition to Jesus. Okay, so that, that's what's happening, and, and, and that's actually a good framework when you're reading the Gospels to, to keep that in mind. A lot of times these crowds that are gathering around him are not gathering around him for, um, for the right reasons. So here we go. We, we, we are going into um, our text today. If you have a Bible or you want to follow along with your phone, we're in Mark chapter 2. We're going to be 2 1 to 12. So I'm mainly staying in Mark today. I might uh, deviate just a little, but uh, the the bulk of the sermon here is going to be in Mark chapter 2, 1 to 12. All right. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Okay, just take a few things happening in this text. Number one, it says um, he was at home. So again, most scholars think he's at Peter's house. 
Okay, hanging out at, at Peter's house. He's teaching, he's preaching. Um, you've got these four men coming in with a paralytic who they're carrying, most likely on a stretcher. And they can't get in the house, as you might imagine. The crowds are so incredibly um, large around the house, they, they can't get there. So they decide, hey, we're going to um, um, go up on to the roof. Now, if you know anything about architecture in Christ's day, most of the houses were one-story houses, and they would have stairs going up to a flat roof. It was very hot in, in, in that um, part of the, the world, so they would at times sleep up on the roof or maybe even do some work up on the roof because it was cooler. So these men carrying their friend decide, hey, we can't get to the door. We're going to go up the stairs. We're going to go on the roof, and we're going to go through the roof. It's pretty crazy, actually, when you, when you think about that. Most of these roofs would have had uh, layers of thatch and, and mud and beams so they could dig through and lower their friend down. But I want to draw your attention this morning to, to the paralytic. This man cannot walk. This is a real man. No, no doubt. This is a, a man who, who is suffering. Um, this is a man that needed to be carried on a stretcher. I also want to draw your attention to that's not an accident. Jesus is, is going to heal this paralytic. This is a story that is recorded in the Gospels because in some way it is a metaphor. And again, I'm not saying this didn't really happen. This absolutely really happened, but it's also pointing to a metaphor for our spiritual state. Our spiritual state before Christ, we are all paralytics. This man doesn't just need a little medicine. He doesn't need physical training, PT. He doesn't need um, maybe months of working out. This man cannot be healed. He cannot walk. I don't know if you've ever heard, um, there, there's a, a line by, by skeptics that say Christianity um, is for the weak. It's a crutch. Have you heard that? Um, it used, used to annoy me when I, when I heard that. But now, for different reasons, it bothers me because the more and more I come to understand who Christ is and who I am, Christianity is not just a crutch. I would have said early on that, yeah, I need a crutch. I am weak. I, I need it. But now I've come to this understanding that, no, Christianity is resurrection from the dead. It, it is new life. It is dying and rising. It has nothing to do with a crutch. Yes, we are weak, but, but we need rebirth. The old has died, the new has come. Lazarus being called out of the tomb when he's dead by Jesus. That is Christianity. And the paralytic 
is a metaphor for that. And he's carried by his four friends. And no doubt these four friends were probably around Jesus. They could have just sat there in the house and listened to the preaching of Jesus. Maybe they were in the house, maybe they weren't. But for them to go get their friend, they would have had to to leave and to sacrifice their position um, under Jesus' teaching, get a stretcher, and carry their friend. We have no idea how long they, they carried him, how far they carried him. All they knew was this man has the words of life. He can heal, and we've got a friend that needs healing. Brothers and sisters, this is a beautiful picture of Christian ministry. Four men, four people bringing their friend to the feet of Christ. I want you to think about your own story. How did you get here? Uh, Maybe you don't believe, maybe you're still wrestling, and that's good, we want you here. Um, but how did you come to Christ? Were there people praying for you? Was somebody sharing the gospel with you? Did somebody invite you to church? How many hands were on your stretcher? How many hands were on your stretcher? See, salvation is of the Lord, but he uses his people to bring people to him. This is the mission. This is the mission that we're on. Go and make disciples. And I would ask you this morning, do you have your hands on any stretchers? See, it's not all up to you. God uses a constellation of people to bring his people to to faith. Maybe he's got you sharing the word. Maybe he's got you teaching someone and opening up a Bible and saying, hey, this is what this means. Or maybe he's got you inviting someone, hey, come, come to church, hear the, hear the word. Do you have your hand on anyone's stretcher? And that, I ask that to, to challenge. We should all be challenged by that. Um, but as we look at this Passage. We see four men carrying a friend to the feet of Christ. All right, let's continue uh, the narrative. Mark chapter 2, 5 to 7. So the, the, the paralytic is, is, comes down through the roof. You can imagine this. I mean, there's no detail here on, um, man, it was a lot of noise. And as Jesus was teaching, uh, the, the, the roof was caving in. And, and, and it, you know, it was wild. God gives us none of that detail. The only detail about it that we see, we're going to see right here, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. He didn't say to the paralytic, you're healed. The first thing he says to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? 
He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they're right. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That is true. And you have the Pharisees here thinking in their heads, this is, this is blasphemy. This isn't good. This man is forgiving sins now. Richard Phillips says this of this moment. He says, forgiveness of sin, sin is the healing Jesus had in mind when he came into the world. And with all the crowds clamoring, clamoring around him for healing their bodies, Jesus used this choice opportunity as the paralytic lay before him to point out the main purpose of his ministry, the forgiveness of sins for all who look to him in faith. I don't want us to miss this here in the scriptures. The greatest miracle in this passage is not that we're going to see the paralytic get up and walk home. The greatest miracle in this passage is the paralytic gets up and walks home is a forgiven man. That's the greatest miracle in this passage. In the Gospel of John, a few years ago, we we, we were working through the Gospel of John, and, and Jesus said on multiple occasions, my hour is not yet come. Um, for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And as you, you probably know, the hour he was talking about was the cross. The hour that Jesus refers to in the Gospel of John is the cross. Brothers and sisters, our, our, our aching bodies, our, our, our blurred vision, our anxious hearts, my teeth, your teeth, it's all a symptom of sin. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying you sin and then you get sick. I'm saying it's all a symptom of sin fallen world, it's nothing else. For sure, it could be our sin. I mean, think of a drug addict or an alcoholic. If you make some choices, you're going to have massive bodily consequences. But don't hear me saying you're sick because you're a sinner. That's not what I'm saying. We get sick and we decay because the problem in the world is sin. And we see Jesus right here going right at it, a paralytic being raised down, and he is thinking, number one, son, your sins are forgiven. Have you come to terms with this in your own life? I don't know what you do with your guilt. And some of you are young and... and, and um, you still are going to know guilt, but as you get older, mistakes have higher consequences. And some of you have made some pretty significant mistakes in your life, including myself. What do you do with your guilt? What do you do with those deep, dark secrets that only you know, or maybe one other person knows? See, I think there's only a few options here. Number one, 
You bury it as deep as you can, and you're going to have to medicate if you're doing that. When I say medicate, like alcohol, drugs, maybe you're getting high, maybe you're drinking, maybe it's food. I don't know, but if you bury it, you've got to numb it somehow. Or you justify it and somebody else did it to you. And that's justification and you're going to end up like a Pharisee. You're going to end up like a Pharisee. He did this to me. That's why I'm like this. She did this to me. That's why I'm like it. this. But there is a way that you can have total freedom from that. And that's what we're looking at in this passage. Son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. Forgiven. Completely washed away. Like that, that thing that's bothering you in the middle of the night that maybe you think about once every three months or maybe it's for you every night that's bothering you and condemning you, that thing can be gone. Like you can actually be, have freedom from that. Have true joy. The Bible talks about it as cleansing. Cleansing. 1 John 1, 8 to 10. If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves. That's why, you know, you, again, it, stop for a moment. If you're in a church, if you leave this church, go to another church, and, or, or your faith, however you're walking that out, if you're in a church that is not talking about repentance from sin, leave and leave fast. Because this is where Christian freedom is found. This is where life is found in coming and agreeing with God. John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. So I don't know where everyone is at this morning with this, but I would just press on you because I know, and I know this from conversations with people, some people here, when you're talking about sin, why are you talking about sin? That's morose, that's dark, that's, that, that, let's just talk about the good stuff. And, and my point here is to get to the good stuff, you have to go there. And you have to stare it right in the face, look to Christ and say, I give it to you. You died for me. You carried that on the cross. Or you can deny it. And John says that, that makes God out to be a liar. To, to deny that you are, have, have sinned or are a sinner is actually calling God a liar. And it takes the cross and just removes it. Why do you need the cross? You don't need it. It just becomes um, some act of uh, some example, uh, which I, I can't even understand. But as soon as Jesus sees this paralytic, he pronounces that his sins are forgiven. Brothers and sisters, just I, I, want, I want to draw your attention, and I know that words are not, I can't, do this well enough. It's only the Holy Spirit that can do it. I pray that the Holy Spirit does it, but I want you to see just how great a gift it is that your sins have been forgiven. 
Because I think a lot of times we just want to go right past that, right? Okay, I've been forgiven. Now what? Now what? Again, in, in the same book, Richard Phillips goes on and he says, how many Christians grumble against God, bemoaning the things they have not received, things they think they should have, acting as if God has let them down, and yet the status from which they rail against him is that of pardoned criminals. They come hungry orphans adopted into a lavish home, protesting the, that the fair is not up to their high standards. I confess, I do that. We all do that. We all do that. But we need to remember that when we argue against God for things that he hasn't, or when we complain to God or grumble to God for things he hasn't given us, we're doing it as pardoned criminals who've been washed and cleansed from the, the, the greatest gift that we could be given is the forgiveness of sins. It's easy to look at everything everyone else has and say, why not me? And listen, it's not lost on me. I, I know, um, especially probably the younger that you, you are, you grew up in the self-esteem era. You're great. Don't worry. Everything's great. You're going to change the world someday. Just wait. You're going to get your, your go at it. The world's a better place because of you. So it's hard when a pastor or a preacher comes along and starts talking about, well, we should really look at our sin and our rebellion against God. And, and that's very different than what you've been discipled in um, maybe growing up. But we have to remember if we, we believe the Bible that, that Peter, when looked, thinking about salvation, he says, angels long to look into our salvation. They marvel at the forgiveness of sins in the cross and salvation. And the writer of Hebrews says to, to you, and we're going to be in Hebrews here soon, to you and me, he says, pay closer attention to what we've heard. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Do not neglect your salvation, brothers and sisters. All right. So the narrative continues. Now remember, to, to go back, he, he pronounces um, forgiveness of sins. And, and what are the Pharisees thinking at this point? They're, they're thinking it. The text says that, that in their hearts, and Luke says, they're, in Luke's account, that they're thinking blasphemy. Who is this man? Right? Who, who, how can this man forgive sins? There's only one way that a man can forgive sins. That's if that man is God. All right. So Mark 2, 8 to 9. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? So a few things here. Um, number one, that they don't even get a chance to talk. Jesus hears, it, perceives what they're saying, and before they can even get a word out, he challenges them. He perceived their thoughts. And it says immediately. So, and immediately, Jesus perceiving 
in his spirit, and he says something to them. Can you imagine that? I mean, this happens multiple times in Jesus' ministry. People are around him. They have a thought, and he answers their thought. <laughs> I mean, amazing. It, 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 it's crazy. But he says, which is easier to say? Well, from a human perspective, it is certainly easier to say your sins are forgiven because there's no proof of your statement. Now, again, you can think about that another way and say, well, no human can say that. True. But in this case, what Jesus is pointing to when he says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or rise, take up your bed and walk. Now, if we think about that, if anybody here um, couldn't walk, uh, it would be pretty hard for any one of us to say, get up and walk, right? There's verifiable proof that that isn't happening. And that's what I believe Jesus is getting at. And then he says here in, in verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So certainly Jesus is, is affirming and confirming that he is the Son of God. He, he, his deity here, he's saying, just so you know that I have authority to say that, I'm going to show you that I'm going to heal this man and he's going to get up and walk. So the miracle of healing this man is subservient to Jesus forgiving the sins. Do you see that in the text? The main miracle is Jesus forgave the sins of this man. And, and brothers and sisters, I would say that when you look at all of the signs and the miracles in the Gospels, they're all doing this. They're pointing to him and the new creation and his authority, and it's going back into the Old Testament and looking forward to the new creation. And again, I, I would just say again that, that the greater miracle in this passage is that the man walked home with his sins forgiven. And again, so this miracle is also pointing to the new creation. There is a certain wholeness that you will experience following Christ. What do I mean by that? We're not disembodied souls. We're not just blood and, and skin and bones, we're a soul and a body. They affect each other. Okay, so, so, so following Christ and living um, your life following him, you will have bodily effects that are good. Okay, you'll have peace, peace of mind. Um, doesn't mean you're not going to get sick. So that got to be very, very careful here. It doesn't mean that you might not die an early death. But there is a certain wholeness to having a relationship with Christ. But the consummation, the fulfillment of that wholeness is future. So we experience a little of it now, but it's 
going to be in full in the new heavens and the new earth. And again, this man having his sins forgiven and then walking away whole is a picture of what is to come for all of us, if you know Christ. But we know illness will come, death will come for us all, suffering will come, Relational tension will be there. People will sin against you. You will sin against people. And the question is not, do I become a Christian and sidestep all of this? That's not the question. Nobody gets to sidestep the suffering of this world. The question is, do I go through this life burying my, my guilt, maybe getting high and drinking and eating and numbing it all or numbing the, the impending death that, if I'm honest and look at, is coming for all of us? Or we can live the life that is truly life, living with gratitude, joy-filled, humble hearts, living as pardoned criminals, adopted as true sons and daughters by the king of kings into his kingdom, awaiting the glorious inheritance that is coming for the saints. And don't get me wrong, there is real, true joy in grabbing hold of that now. Real joy now. But to do that, We've got to stare sin in the face and do one or two things with it. Give it to him on the cross or bury it. Those are your options. I pray that if, if you're in here and you've been in the second category, that you'd look to Christ today, look to the cross, give your life to him, look to, to Christ and say that, that that death was for me. You carried my sins on the cross. Thank you. We're going to celebrate communion here. And, and Christ has given communion to his people, also called the Lord's Supper, as a, an ordinance or a sacrament to remember exactly that. His death on the cross for our forgiveness of sins. Jesus has given us communion to take together as a, a family, to, to look around and say, hey, I'm not in this alone. There's brothers and, and sisters here who, who have been saved and have looked to him and, and worship him. So when we take communion, we're communing with Christ in a unique way, but we're also, as a body, doing it. That's why we do communion in church as a gathered body. But I would just press on you this morning, that, that thing that has haunted you, it's weighed you down. You've tried to forget it, but you can't forget it. It sneaks up on you in, in the most random moments. You don't know why. It gets in your head and you regret it. He carried that sin on the cross so you don't have to bear the guilt and shame.
That's what we're doing when we take communion. We're remembering that. So if you've never done that, why not do it now? Give your life to Christ. Look to the cross. He will take your sin. He will wash you clean. And if you want to pray with anyone, you can certainly ask me or Steve or, or others here and just say, hey, I want, I'm interested in this. I, I don't quite understand it, um, but I want it. I'm going to read from Isaiah, and then after I read, just come up and take the, the bread and the cup. Isaiah 53, 4 to 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, this is Jesus who Isaiah is talking about, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So at this time, I would just say, come on up and, and take the, the cup and, and the bread and, and sit down and we will take the supper together. The Apostle Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. If you're in here and, and you're not a believer and you don't call yourself a believer, this is the, the gospel, this is the good news. The righteous Son of God suffering for, for the unrighteous. And you and I are the unrighteous. If you're willing to admit it, you bring to the table nothing. I bring to the table nothing. In fact, it's even worse than that. You bring to the table your sin. And he brings everything. Jesus Christ is making all things new. And like we started out the time together this morning, he had to deal with sin. To make all things new, sin had to be dealt with. The righteous Jesus suffering for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. If you think about it, Jesus could forgive the paralytic's sin because he is God. He's the son of God. So he has the authority to do it. But let me uh, introduce you another thought there. Jesus could forgive the sin of the paralytic because Jesus himself carried that man's sin on the cross. He knew that man's sin. He knew that Man, he was about to die for that man. So not only is Jesus 
God, Jesus, intimately carried the paralytic sin. And if you know him in here, he carried your sin, sin that you haven't even done yet. He took it on the cross. So church, let us eat the bread together, remembering that Christ can forgive sins because he carried our sin. The cup represents his blood. Let us drink the cup together, remembering that the chastisement that brings us peace and healing was laid upon him. Heavenly Father, we, we ask that you, through your Holy Spirit, give us a greater revelation of, of our sin and a greater revelation of your love and what you did for us through your Son on the cross. God, as we sing this last song together, all glory be to Christ, there's a line in it that I just pray that, that we can grasp um, as a body that, that just makes sense for this sermon series. Um, and you say, the Lamb who was for sinners slain is making all things new. You're making all things new, Lord. We thank you and we praise you and we love you in your name. Thanks for tuning in with us. We hope that you found this sermon edifying, encouraging, and challenging. To learn more about Vintage Faith Church, visit vintagefaithcicero.com. And of course, if you live in the area, we invite you to worship the Lord with us on Sunday mornings.